again. Welcome to another episode of A Father's Instruction. This is Jason Tackett, your host, and I am going to be delving today into the subject of ethics, or Christian ethics, right and wrong, good and evil, and is there even such thing? And we'll be looking at the scriptures and we will be trying to ascertain what we mean by good and evil. I guess I want to start, and there's a lot of places we could start that speak of this matter of good and evil, this matter of ethics. Uh, I want to start by just drawing our attention to a couple different texts. The first text I want to look at is found in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 5, and verse 20, where he gives us this very stark warning of sorrow and judgment for ignoring or even uh, perverting these very ideas of evil and good. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20 tells us this, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So woe unto them or sorrow unto them that call evil good and, and good evil. And that appears to be a description of where we are at in our culture and in our society. And I, another text I want to look at and I want to try to get to and I want to kind of bridge the gap is Romans chapter 14. And I believe it is in verse 12, where it says, So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. This idea that there is this judgment, that there is this time in which we are all going to have to answer for the things that we have done. So I want to bridge the gap and I want to kind of use those as a springboard to kind of talk about this idea of ethics and what that means to the Christian and how it is looked at in the world uh, and try to defend our Christian faith. So to we that are committed Christians, the idea of absolute morality is, is not controversial at all. We see things as black and white. Murder is wrong, and it's wrong to bear false witness against your neighbor, and it's, and it's right to love your neighbor. And we, we, we see those things, and we see those categories as absolute. And we know that there are these good things that should be sought, and that there are these evil things that we should avoid and we should we should flee from them even we can as cs lewis once categorized in his uh, allegorize rather in his pilgrim's regress tell the difference between things that are meant for our good and nourishment and the things that are meant for trash 
of course, I'm reminded of of the story there of 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 that C.S. Lewis was telling in that book, Pilgrim's Regress, where the where the pilgrim went to the inn and was served a plate of eggs, and he commented to the innkeeper about how how good how good tasting the eggs were, and the innkeeper. Uh, snidely rep- replied to the pilgrim and said, uh, well, it just came from the hind end of a chicken and there's really no difference between an egg and other things that come out of the hind end of a chicken. And of course, Reason later comes and rescues Pilgrim and shows him the error of the spirit of the age that says that there is no difference between what nature intended for nourishment and what nature intended for trash and waste. And, but we as Christians, we, we intuitively know that there is a difference in those things. But in our culture, in a culture that we live in that embraces this relative truth and relative beauty, the idea of a real and absolute and concrete right and wrong, good and evil as real categories, it's ambiguous. And at worst, it's, it's even hateful. I was just reading an article uh, that showed up on my news feed on my, on my um, phone and it was regarding this country music singer that had performed and had gotten a lot of flack for the way that she was dressed and the provocative way that she behaved in her performance. And she snidely answered back to her critics and said that she as a woman should be able to do anything she wants to without criticism. That's kind of where we're at in our culture that it's ambiguous and no one should be able to tell me what is right and what is wrong. In fact, the person who attempts to say that anything is wrong, that person is labeled as being wrong. Uh, They're bigoted, they're hate mongers, or, or things of that nature. The philosophy of goodness in our present culture can be summed up really just in that color gray. And, and I think of the movies the, the, that have come out in the last few years and the books that, that were being devoured, Fifty Shades of Gray. And I think that more describes the morality of the average person than anything else. I enjoyed watching the show The Office, and I remember one of one of the uh, characters on that television show, uh, on one of their mockumentary interviews, uh, said at one point, "What is right and what is wrong? Who can tell? It's unknowable." Uh, so no one really wants to delve into this idea of right and wrong, and ultimately, it's because of where the idea leads. Uh, and it leads directly at the doorstep of God. So in such a culture, the only absolute evil is judgment, <laughs> that things are evil and that things are wrong, that, cho- that there are choices that should not be made. And that is why the most quoted verses, verse of Scripture in the entire Bible is judge not. <laughs> they don't 
quote the rest of the verse. They definitely don't go into the rest of the chapter and understand the context of it. But Matthew 7.1 is the most quoted verse in our society. Everybody believes that no judgments should ever be made, at least about whatever they choose to do. So such a culture is, that is incapable of making a difference, differentiating between things that are meant for nourishment and things that are meant for trash, is, is a culture that is not going to stand. There is this vacuum of morality and people are lost and, and we see things degenerating around us and the problem is a moral problem. The problem is, is an ethical problem. The problem is spiritual. The problem is that little three-letter word that everybody wants to avoid unless they really want to condemn something that they see in the world, that word sin. And but such a culture that denies the reality of sin becomes a morally bankrupt culture that cannot survive long. Such a philosophy of moral relativity is kind of a short-term gain for a lot of people, or they see it as a gain, because they can desire and they can follow through with their desires and with their lust, and they can do so without judgment, without any consequence, without any, 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 any resistance, any way, shape, or form. It's kind of the pro-choice philosophy, uh, the philosophy of pro-choice, and I'm not just talking about Abortion. I'm talking about the pro-choice philosophy that undergirds it. This idea that my choices should never have consequences. My choices should never have judgment. No one should say that I'm wrong. And that is the philosophy that is taught. But that short-term gain is a long-term moral moral loss, and we see that in the corruption of our society. Uh, our, our whole culture is decaying, and it reminds us of what, what uh, the historian, the French historian and philosopher Tocqueville had stated when he came to America and he was trying to discover what made America so great. And he looked at it in its institutions, he looked in its... In, in, in its commerce, he looked in all these places and could not discover what made America great until he went into the churches. And he said, there I saw the pulpits aflamed with righteousness. And he said, America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will also cease to be great. And we've seen that we have ceased to be a good country. Uh, I shudder to think that when we sing "God Bless America," that we want that we want to believe that God blesses the things that we endorse and the things that we do. We've ceased to be good, and we've ceased also to be the least free society on the places of the planet. We have regulations for everything we are regulated and we are we are bound by a thousand laws 
and which reminds us also of and getting into the realm of politics and government but reminds us of what Pro Proverbs 29 2 says where Solomon said for the transgression of the land many are the princes thereof so the more wicked we become the bigger our government becomes and the more the more regulations there are it's a response and an inevitable inevitable end of wickedness so the inability of the culture to govern and judge itself naturally leads to the need of that culture to be governed and usually by the arbitrary rule and philosophies of despots. Virtue alone, contrary to the current, current ideals and politics, virtue alone produces freedom. So ethics. Ethics is this category of human reasoning that deals with the question, what is good? Just like when we were dealing with uh, metaphysics before, it's answering the question, what is truth? Here, this is a brand new category. What is good? It's the ethics is the realm of reasoning that by far incites more emotional responses than any other Christian philosophy that we could that we can proclaim. It, it, it's controversial because we are talking about the way people behave, the way we behave, and we're never going to delve into that subject without getting resistance. For the Christian, the existence of a personal infinite, holy, righteous God is the only basis for morality and ethics. And I should correct myself and say that's not just for the Christian, that's for everybody. And we're going to get into that and kind of defend that point here in a few minutes. That, but that which is good is that which conforms to his revealed nature, to what he has revealed himself to be. Goodness finds an absolute reference point in God, and so does evil. Evil is that which is deprived of the goodness of God. Is, it does not resemble its creator. Evil is that which does not conform to his nature and what he has revealed of his nature. And outside of the person and nature of God, concepts like good and evil lose all meaning, all philosophical meaning, all practical meaning. There is no meaning. My favorite author by far is Fyodor Dostoevsky, and I've got a few other authors that I've really delved into, and he is always coming to the top of my list. I, I've never read one of his books as as tiring as it was, and he wore me out in every book I've ever read. Uh, that I, when I finished the book, I was always glad I did. And he argued in a in a couple of his great classic works, the Brothers Karamazov and and Crime and Punishment specifically, um, that if there is no God then all things are permissible. That was his thesis. That was his argument. 
and he introduces these characters that believe that there is no God and they can do whatever they want and they run into the reality that there is. Even Immanuel Kant, the great philosopher and one that is still revered in our culture and one that has a great effect on our culture still, he said that God is unknowable uh, so is self and so is the na true nature of things. Uh, the idea that you can't know anything about tr ultimate reality or truth is, was denied by Kant. But when he got to his, when he got to his uh, part on ethics, he had to reintroduce God and sneak God in the back door because he realized that if there is no God and if there is no judgment, there is no ethics. And there is no right and wrong. And such a world for him is unlivable. So even, even philosophers like that, when they wanted to build a, a, a uh, philosophy of ethics, they had to invoke God. And deists throughout the uh, 18th and 19th century continued in that tradition where they asserted the existence of God, they asserted the final judgment, even though they denied all specific interventions of God into reality, they knew they had to have God or they did not have good and evil as real categories. So the need for the existence of God as a ground for ethics becomes apparent when one attempts to base their ethics on something else other than the existence of God, specifically the existence of the God of the Scriptures. And the atheists may say that they do not need to believe in God to do what is good, and that may be partly right. There's probably some atheists out there, and I know there's some atheists out there. They're not murdering people and shoplifting and uh, doing all manner of, of things that we would overtly consider evil. So they're kind of partly right, but they are absolutely wrong because they need God for the concepts to have any meaning. The atheists, for instance, may, may say they do not believe in God because uh, they they see all the evil, quote-unquote, that exists in the world. Well, where did they get the concept of evil? Well, they borrowed it from the Christian. They borrowed it from the theist. Material philosophers, what material philosophy is that which is held by the atheists, they say, well, the only thing that exists is space, time, and matter. Uh, or as Carl Sagan once said, uh, the cosmos is all there is, all there was, and all there ever will be. And all that is governed by the law of cause and effect, this, this great cosmic machine. In such a reality, morality does not exist. There's no such thing as evil and good in a machine. Morality doesn't exist in a swinging pendulum. It swings from left to right based upon what the laws of nature have prescribed. And therefore, there is no good and evil in a human being. Any 
any uh, evolutionist or Darwinist that is consistent with what they believe about material philosophy comes to this idea that their freedom of the will is an illusion. Personality is an illusion. We're just chemical reactions in our brain that are reacting to the laws of cause and effect. And there's no difference in the chemical reactions in one brain that causes a person to help an old lady across the street or the chemical reactions in another brain that causes them to beat the old lady up and take her purse. That there is no real moral difference because both of them were simply reacting to, to the... Uh, laws of cause and effect that work in the chemical reactions in their brain. And some atheists like uh, Richard Dawkins who would say, well, we are all just dancing to our DNA. We are doing what our DNA has programmed us to do. There is no morality. There is no real right and wrong, no real good and evil in such a world. There is no difference between giving someone a hot cup of coffee and pouring a hot cup of coffee over their head. There's no difference between, between kindness and cruelty in such a world. All of it is simply the law of cause and effect at work in the machine. If God is dead, then ethics is dead too. And we can't even speak about those categories. However, we all know that there is the existence of good and evil. It is absolute evil for a two-year-old child to be beaten or molested. No reasonable person would say that domestic violence is okay or or morally neutral. No reasonable person would say it's okay for a man to savagely beat and murder his wife. No reasonable person would say that it was okay for Hitler or for Nazi Germany to kill six million Jews or Stalin to kill 40 million of his own people. And any philosophy that says that those, those things are not evil in a real way is a morally bankrupt culture. This is one of the main reasons why we reject atheism. An evolutionary theory because it produces this insane ethic that says that such things are not absolutely wrong. And what do you get when you're looking at evolution, when you're studying nature? You don't get ethical principles. I remember sitting in a college classroom and we were talking about sexuality, you know, and a lady thought that she was uh, very, uh, very intelligent and she made the argument that it's okay for such and such to happen in her life and for her to do such and such a thing because it was found in the animal kingdom. Well, <laughs> I would not base morality on what we see animals do. I mean, I've seen, I've seen a dog once eat its own young, and we do not believe that that's okay for humanity. We don't consider an eagle um, 
uh, immoral when it sweeps away, sweeps down and grabs uh, food that was meant for someone else. We don't call that eagle a thief. We don't have those categories, but humanity is something different. We know that there is something real in these categories. And material philosophy says there isn't. Evolution tells us that whatever is, is right. We are simply born the way we are. These are just the simple things that, that, that nature is doing. And, and it's right if it's happening. Unless it happens to be a Christian trying to proclaim evil and good having real categories, then that's the only thing that's wrong. But the material philosopher cannot speak of evil when a lion kills a deer, or, and therefore they cannot speak of evil when a man kills another man. I remember the movie Natural Born Killers as I was a child. I watched really terrible things like that. But what was the philosophy of the movie Natural Born Killers? It was, very, it was that, that I am made to kill is what the main character said. And it's natural and you should, it's, it's found in nature and you should not tell me that I cannot do that. Their metaphysical philosophy denies them the ability of speaking of ethics in any real way. And so it is this idea that we can, that science can give us all the answers and science can ultimately tell us all things. Well, the scientific method cannot give you ethics. It can't. Scientific method can't tell us why a scientist should be honest about their finding. <laughs> uh, scientific Method cannot be used to show that the scientific method can lead to truth. It's, a, it, it's an absurdity. And a scientific method cannot tell you what is right and wrong. You cannot take a blade of gra grass and put it under a microscope and study it and, and measure it and do all these other things and say, Aha! An epiphany. Here it is right in this blade of grass as I'm studying it. Thou shalt not kill. There's no such command to be found in the study of nature. The study of nature, divorced from the existence of a holy God, is indifferent to moral questions. And as some have said, nature is red, violent, bloody, in tooth and claw. But we all know that evil exists. It's in our conscience. Every human being knows it. It's a reality. It's, it's, it's just as real as numbers and the law of non-contradiction and everything else. It's, it's, it's there. And all, but all attempts to ground ethics outside of God fail. Uh, we could say, well, authority will tell us what's right and wrong. Well, that's, that doesn't work either. Um, we can ground ethics in pragmatism, whatever works, that's what's good. Well, who gets to decide what the good end that we should be working towards is? I mean, Hitler was a pragmatist, a very good one probably. Well, the greatest good for the greatest number, that's ethics, John Stuart Mill, uh, utilitarianism. Well... You have to know what is good first before you know 
how to give the greatest goods of the greatest number. And, and pragmatism and utilitarianism is, is may, maybe even be some good tools for us to use about how to apply goodness, but they can't tell us what goodness is. And to say that pragmatism and utility can tell us what goodness is is, is to leave us at the arbitrary will of somebody. If good is defined as whatever works, then someone can imprint their vision of what is good upon someone else, and it may not be so. What about just things that we know to be true? Popular sentiment or, or sentimental. Uh, I think of Immanuel Kant's uh, categorical imperative or, 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 or some people would just talk about the golden rule do unto others well such an idea without God cannot overcome the simple question why why should I do unto others the philosophy of Gert do no harm that sounds good, right? It sounds intuitively true. We should work to do no harm. And we reduce all ethics to something like that. However, built into that statement is this assumption that doing harm is evil. Where did we come up with the concept? Further, who gets to decide the definition of harm? I remember reading a story of a woman who, one by one, drowned each one of her five kids and she did not feel like she was harming them she felt like she was doing them good maybe the classical idea of avoiding pain and enjoying pleasure that's an ethical base i i think it was either daniel dennett or one of the um, uh, famous atheists uh kind of has that same idea uh, and I, was, I heard him in a in a debate once uh, that avoiding pain and enjoying pleasure that's that's your ethics. Well, what about those who get pleasure from causing pain? Such ideas cannot condemn the rapist, child molester, or defendants at Nuremberg. Besides, we know that there are things that bring pleasure that are evil. And we know there are things that avoid pain which are evil. For instance, there is no culture on the face of the planet where being a coward is considered to be a good thing. Not all of these ideas, though, they're not all bad in and of themselves, but they cannot be the real meaningful base of morality. And no system of ethics that ignores God as a lawgiver and as a judge is able to account for the real existence of evil or provide a person with a reason why they should do good. It all ends with the arbitrary will of the individual or the government to define what is right and wrong. Relativism leaves us unable to judge anything as necessarily and absolutely wrong. As such, 
it potentially allows for all manner of evil. And the ghost of Dostoevsky comes. If there is no God, all things are permissible. But we all know, like I say over and over again, even the most depraved among us knows innately that evil exists. We know it when someone tries to do something evil to us, <laughs> at the very least. And that and things happen that are wrong. Therefore, we know innately that there is an absolute standard of goodness. We know that standard is there. So the question remains, what is good? As with the other categories of human reasoning, metaphysics and aesthetics, ethics has its own necessary first principles. Things that are just revealed in the nature of reality. As we begin to navigate reality and thought about this subject or just reality in general, we run into these truths. And they, we run into them because they are revealed truths. They are revealed to men by God himself in the nature of things. These are the first principles. And I've got four of them, but I only want to give you the first one today. First, then, the bedrock of ethics is this idea of obligation. It's in our language. We cannot speak about ethics without obligation. Without a real obligation, no real ethical statements can ever be made. There are words in our language that are just necessary. Words like ought and should. And we can make statements with those words. One cannot make statements like, you should not or ought not. Abuse a two-year-old child. You should not savagely beat and murder your wife. And you cannot make statements like that in a relatively, a moral relative world without these obligatory statements ethics is the, is reduced down to david hume's idea of emotional statements of taste we can only say without obligatory language we can only say I do not like this, and I do not like that. But we can never say that it ought not or should not be done. For instance, I do not like when people abuse two-year-old children. Does that carry any real statement of ethics? Morality? It's no different than that same person turning around and say, I do not like vanilla ice cream. 
That's not saying anything. That's just talking about a taste or a preference. And such statements of taste and preference can never say that something is wrong. And that's precisely where our culture is. Judgment is reduced to whatever is in fashion. And whatever is in fashion seems to be getting more and more vile, more and more violent. And no one is able to put the brakes on and say, no, we cannot, this should not happen. Because whatever is in fashion with the majority of the culture is right. We must have obligation or we don't do not, can't talk, have ethics or morality. However, and this is why I guess it causes such vehemence when we start talking in this real language of should and ought, this obligatory language, because it automatically raises the question, who am I obligated to? course you can try to sneak in obligation and say well I'm obligated to myself well that can't be we can't have all these six billion people around here all obligated only to themselves to do whatever they think is right because we would have six billion people that are the sum of all things to themselves and there's no real obligation there anyway to act in a certain way. In fact, if I'm the sum of all things, then whatever I want to do is right. You take a perusal of the book of Judges in the Bible, and you, you read about this vileness that's happening, and it keeps coming back to this idea, there was no king in the land in those days, and every man did that which is right in their own eyes. No, I'm not obligated to myself. But maybe, just maybe, someone says, I can have these shoulds, and I can have these oughts, and I can be obligated to society. Well, that doesn't work either. You know, if you have a leaky bucket, it won't hold water, and if you add five leaky buckets together, it's still not really going to hold water. It's just not. It, it can't. I mean, what is society? Well, wh wh whether, you're whether you're talking about a democracy or, or a kingship or an oligarchy or something of that matter, it's still these flawed individuals. Maybe to a certain extent we are you know, obligated to society. We're told that. We're told if someone commits a crime that uh, they owed a debt to society. And uh, I, I think that's wrongheaded and that, that, that'll be a subject for another day. But we're still tying our obligation to an arbitrary thing that may in and of itself do wrong. Surely we can think of some countries and some cultures that have done wrong. We've already mentioned some. Uh, and we got to be able to say when we see the most terrible things happening, 
such as human sacrifice and infanticide and genocide that is being perpetuated by cultures that believe that they are, that they are doing right, we want to be able to say that they're not. We have to be able to say. Or else we're men without chest, as C.S. Lewis would say. I mean, what if a society deemed 51% of the people in, we, in our democracy, <laughs> uh, what if they deemed that it was okay to commit involuntary human sacrifice tomorrow? Would that make it okay? Many of the Nazis claimed that they were just doing what they were told. They were doing what was socially acceptable in their culture. And we knew even at Nuremberg that it wasn't right, that they should have acted another way than they did, regardless of their orders, regardless of what was socially acceptable. On that basis, they were guilty. And that's the bad word. That's what we're not ever supposed to make people feel is guilty. Obligation necessitates the existence of God. There is a moral law and there is a moral lawgiver who shall judge all and to whom we are all accountable. There is a reason that we still swear or affirm to tell the truth with the words, so help me God. Also, the obligation that we know exists tells us truths about God. It tells me that there is a personal God, one that I already know in the Scriptures. In a study of metaphysics, one comes to know that out of the impersonal only comes the impersonal. You don't get personality from the impersonal. Personhood does not exist without a personal first cause. Applied to ethics, we learn that there can be no real obligation to an impersonal force. And that's for two reasons. An impersonal force cannot differentiate. That's an act of a mind. It cannot say this is wrong, this is right. And an impersonal force cannot make something known. So if we know what's evil, if we know something is evil, we know that because it's been communicated to us somehow, one mind to another. That's one of the chief reasons that and the chief failures of Eastern mysticism and material evolution, material philosophy, because because impersonal forces are no ground of ethics. And Dostoevsky's thesis continues to speak truth. There is no personal God, then all things are permissible. But it also tells me that this God is immutable. He changes not in his essential nature. He said, I am the Lord, I change not in Malachi 3.6. There is no variableness, neither shadow of turning in him in James 1.17. A changing God cannot be the ground of reality. It can't. It cannot help us escape all morality or relativism. Because there is no guarantee with a changing God that what I do is right right now and will be right in the future. Or that someday 
uh, abusing two-year-olds is going to be okay. It cannot take away that possibility. And such an idea is repugnant. It tells us that God is a relational reality in his very nature. There is no law above God or else that law would be God and God would not be God because God is the highest. But that would, and such an idea that there's a law above God destroys obligation by making ethics grounded in the impersonal. God must express morality in his nature. We use terms about God like God is righteous, God, God is love. Well, those are relational concepts. To be righteous is to be right in relationship to something. But the scriptures tell us that there is this loving, righteous God, a being in relationship, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity shows itself to be superior to Unitarian views time and time again. God expresses his righteousness and his goodness in his very nature because God is relational. Nothing in space and time is necessary or divine. God is the self-contained, good, righteous God. Goodness is expressing that very nature. And much more could be said. Much more could be deduced about ethics, about God. Let me just add two more dimensions. Obligation tells us that there's a God that's revealing himself. He's communicating things. God must have revealed his will, and we know his will to a certain extent. Even if, even if it's a little blurry sometimes, we know that he has expressed something to us. And if we seek him, we can know. He's, he's revealed himself in time and space, in the pages of history, in our own conscience. If right and wrong are not made known, then we're not responsible. We're not obligated. But we are obligated, and we all know that we are, which brings up this idea of sin and why we hate it so much. But obligation also tells us that there is a judgment. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. If there is no final judgment, there is no ethics. Well, that concludes the podcast for today. I hope you received something from this and it was a blessing to you. Until next time, bye.